Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and works of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm your host, Kristen Chavez. On today's podcast, I talk with Andrea Bowman, Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in the Music Department. She studies the political stakes of music making and sound in the 20th and 21st centuries. Her current research explores ethnographic and feminist and queer approaches to sound recordings, politics, and the everyday life, particularly in East Central Europe. In 2023, she was one of the recipients of the inaugural Summer International Collaborative Research Grant. The Institute launched the grant for faculty members at the Associate Professor Rank in the Arts, Humanities, and Qualitative Social Sciences in the College of Arts and Sciences. The grant provides $20,000 of funding for up to five years to conduct research abroad and develop international partnerships. In summer 2023, Bowman collaborated with universities in Poland for her project titled Listening for Consent, The Politics of Quiet Social Power. Andrea, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kristen. Nice to be here. Before we get into the work you did with the grant, can you tell me how you got involved into this line of research and what drew you into it? I really see this project, Listening for Consent, as growing out of um the set of research that I did for my first book, which was on social movements in East Central Europe, specifically in Poland, looking how artists and activists treated sound, what they imagined for sound when they were working towards specific political goals. Um, Specifically, I was interested in uh, how sound enabled conversation and collaboration. And as a musicologist, I'm really interested in music as one mode of sonic communication and uh, and one means of creating sonic intimacy. So the archetypal version of that is singing together at a protest or um, feeling like a particular artist represents your way of engaging in society or your moral and ethical orientation to living, to life. So I see this project really as growing out of that, but also inspiring me as I write a new book, as I prepare to think about what it means with tenure to be able to develop longer term and relationships with colleagues and also artists in the region where I work. Um, and I look to, you know, sort of deepen those ties that I that I developed and like needed for the research for my first book. So on the one hand, it's very much coming out of ideas, materials that interested me. I, my work was on the 1980s, so I'm a historian, but not a lot of historians um, tend to work on that um, that recent um, of past. But what I found really interesting is the bounty of cassette tapes that people had that were provided sort of archives of their lives, their artistic interests, but also recordings of radio broadcasts or political speeches or even just recordings of events that they held in their homes. So I got into these cassettes. Um, I thought, oh, this is like a little bit different than what we think of as like the mixtape, which is, you know, mm-hmm. sort of sonic gift that we accept, cherish, um, love that becomes the, you know, the the format for playlists today where you sort of say like, hey, these songs made me think of you, you know, when you listen to them, think of me. Um, these were uses of cassette tapes that were related to that sense of like we can build social relationships to that, but were a little bit more than that. And kind of started to realize like actually all of this sound recording 
history, it's not just a way to think about politics moving or music's moving, but it's actually something much more fundamental, which is just human relationships. So it's a kind of archive of history that we tend to go to for content as historians. We listen to oral histories to be like, what is the biography of this person? And when I go to these materials, I'm interested in figuring out, well, like, what is happening in a scene that I sort of have access to and why do I have access to this scene, whether it's a concert, a news recording, or something very, very intimate like a baby's first words, which is one of the things people record a lot. So that's all part of the sort of like the book that I'm imagining is going to be mm-hmm. at the end of this project. So I see this this collaborative grant as both facilitating network making for me, conversation that I want to facilitate across the Atlantic through scholarly networks that are very hard, especially, of course, during COVID to cultivate and reciprocate, but also just in general, um, as an associate professor, you've got you know more admin time. So summers are really the time when you can travel and, and deepen those relationships. And so this is, this is something that um, holds a lot of promise for me in terms of just keeping keeping myself uh, responsible and relatable and also committed to social and intellectual networks in in East Central Europe and specifically Poland. Um, so I was drawn to this book because it gives me, um, I think, a lot of possibilities for interdisciplinary research. So some of the people I'm collaborating with are cultural in our cultural historians are in cultural studies, but also media and visual arts, as well as in musicology, my home discipline. So. Can you tell me a little bit about musicology and what first drew you into that and mm-hmm. perhaps that that interest in history and getting into to Central and East Europe? Yeah. I will, like a lot of musicologists, but definitely not all musicologists, I started off playing a lot of music. Uh, I actually was pretty confident I didn't want to pursue music full-time. Um, I was a violinist, in, very active in high school and college, but it was just really important for me that that was separate from my academic work. But I just find, found myself returning again and again and just really enjoying doing music research on my own once I was sort of in classes in college. Musicology is it's kind of inherently interdisciplinary space in any university. Um, On the one hand, one of the things we do is something that's really specific to music. We try to understand how musical forms are put together. We study particular genres and scenes. Um, We try to think about what's special and specific about music. And in order to do that, we use methodologies or research techniques from a range of disciplines. So some musicologists are really interested in social and cultural questions like myself. Others are more invested in probing sort of philosophical questions or even history of philosophical questions, thinking about aesthetics, poetics. Um, Mm -hmm. What does it mean that music is something that happens in time? It's fleeting, yet we hold on to it so much. You know, it's it's very different to analyze music and to pull apart what music means is a very different challenge than literature and art history um, and, of course, other kinds of sources. Not better or worse, just different. Mm -hmm. So musicology, um, my work is, I, I, I really like the kind of conflict between the feelings we have about music as individuals and as collectives and especially in memory and how that's in tension sometimes with sort of what 
music actually does um, when we look at the historical record. Um, so I got interested in music and politics because, well, coming from the United States, there's sort of these iconic moments where we think about music as as embodying political hope or even a liber- having a liberatory potential, mm-hmm. thinking, of course, to um, black power movements, civil rights movement, um, union movements, union musics, and, of course, like, um, like the, the function and power of music among enslaved people in the 19th century, 18th century. So those models are really, um, or those historical examples are, are central. Um, but what I found through some opportunities I had, I was working in Berlin um, in college and then, or during college and then after college and kept finding these examples where music and politics were doing something something different, where composers or jazz musicians imagined within music, oh, we could create an ideal society or kind of utopian understanding of human relationships within mm-hmm. music. And what would it be to build a politics where we set the music up first and then create the social world instead of having a social world and like drawing music or hmm. performing mapping music onto it. Of course, then when I came back to the US, I realized, oh, that's also going on here. I just didn't know about it because there yeah. were these other things. So I kind of got interested in this kind of tensions between sort of specific historical examples and how people with particular, sometimes more progressive, sometimes more politi- conservative political ideologies, how they, what, why they turn to music and when over other kinds of artistic um, and performance projects. Um, You know, one of the things I want to do with this grant is bring artists or use some of the funds or connections to apply for grants to commission some artwork. And some of that, I think, is going to be using material objects. So uh, built, you know, uh, I don't know, one one person I'm hoping to work with is an oil paint, works with oil paint, right? So not music, right? But is certainly thinking about how... um, material culture relates to ongoing political debate. Yeah. Yeah, that is really cool. Thanks for sharing that. So your research also explores the idea and the practice of consent when it comes to sound recordings. How does the technology play into all of that? And of course, while thinking about things like social movements and and the politics behind it. Yes. I think one of the, the materials, sort of archival moments out of which there are two that really generated this this mm-hmm. kind of angle. And I'm still thinking through it, of course, living um, in 21st century America where uh, and working on a college campus where discussions and discourses on consent have been so important for, of course, undergraduate students, now increasingly in the state of North Carolina, thinking about reproductive rights, also adolescents and people into the, like, through their, their 20s and 30s. Um, and so when we think about discourses of access to medical care and bodily autonomy, it's, of course, sort of one of the references there. But I started thinking about it just in sort of the, um, I don't know, listening, listening, actually, because I was listening to a cassette tape that um, was released through sort of, it's easy to call it underground network, but it's not quite what it was. It was sort of a hand-to-hand alternative economy. Um, mm-hmm. So something between a sort of a bootleg and an indie newspaper, but on tape. Okay. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so free, um, kind of had a 
certain political vibe to it was meant to be shared among people within sort of like-minded political circles. Not within the traditional system we might right. think of. Yeah, you couldn't buy it at a shop, for yeah. example, right? Um, you could you could go to a kiosk where you knew someone was working there, was, might have access to it and give them a tape and they could make a copy for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but listening to it um, basically just came across someone singing, singing a political text, like a news item, instead of speaking it. Um, So imagine you turn on NPR one morning and everything is sung instead of spoken um, or whatever radio station of Mm -hmm. your choice is. And it's like, this is really bizarre. And it turned out in that moment, 1981, there was not really yet technology to confirm that someone's sung voice was their own voice. So mm-hmm. singing a text became a way of obscuring authorship and saying like, well, if you were called into court saying like, oh, you said something against the government, mm-hmm. you could be like, you have no evidence that that was me. Um, and so it became a way of distancing yourself from what you what you had said, right? Um, but also, of course, it plays with this notion that people who are listening to it immediately recognize the, the person's voice. Um, and that, you know, these circles were were small in that way. Another um, example that really sort of brought this idea of consent into the center of this project is um, an example of some recordists, music recordists, who were on site with a bunch of folk musicians. And they asked the folk musicians to begin and stop the recordings that they were making. So a little bit as though I could stop the podcast if I ever mm-hmm. podcast recording right now, if I ever became uncomfortable with, um, with I don't know, the atmosphere between us or mm-hmm. with what I had said or I wanted to start over or something like that. And this kind of notion that like technology is democratizing often is about like access, like everyone can listen to music at home right now because you have, well, you know, in the 1950s, because you have a hi-fi setup or a radio. And nowadays it's like, because you have a, a phone in your pocket that gives you access to all of this music. This So this isn't democratizing in that sense. This is more in the sense of like, well, some technology becomes so much a part of everyday life that actually sharing the technology or administering it together is a different site of relationship between, say, a researcher or a music producer or, um, yeah, even something like a group of activists who are recording something together, if anyone can turn it off at any given time. I mean, I think about even something as banal and uninteresting to the world as like a faculty meeting, right? Um, is if someone if someone could hijack the agenda essentially at any point. Um, that's kind of what technology was doing. So these are some of the things, one of the things I'm like that that kind of motivate this project. And one of the things I've been talking about with colleagues is just sort of like, well, What's special about like the listening aspect of this? So what go what what happens when you're sitting there and you're listening to historical documents and you can maybe start to feel someone's getting uncomfortable or that someone's putting pressure on someone else? That's a different location of consent between something like I don't know another example comes up a lot in music history or legal history is like sampling music from one recording, copyright law, and mm-hmm. and sort of sound recordings. And this is maybe locating consent at a little bit of a different site than that. Um, yeah. Like a, a different sort of removal yeah. from that stat. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's part of that general conversation, which is like, wow, sound on the one hand seems like something that we all, that when you speak, it becomes, you know, part of public, you know, part of your sort of 
becomes public expression in some mm-hmm. ways. I mean, this is a part of what's behind discourses on free speech, right? Is that uh, is that there is an individual there um, from whom the expression begins, and then it becomes a part of the public domain, so to speak. Um, but technology is imbricated into some of the more nefarious <laughs> parts of that, right? Including things like surveillance, right? So mm-hmm. something that wasn't meant to be shared, right, can become shared through recordings as well. Yeah. And um, as you mentioned with that idea and the access of technology, you know, you don't know when you might be recording. You don't know when you're walking down and you might appear in someone's Instagram or TikTok or whatever else. And then that intersection of what I'm speaking is speech, you know, speech and it's public, but then who's listening and who is recording? And yes, we have control over this space, but but what goes beyond and how, you know, what if there is another recording out there? You know, it, that changes, I imagine, how people are responding in the moment, how they might be controlling their own speech and their own um, sound. And even as I'm thinking of like, as technology advances and can pick up further or pick up more, like how does that all play in? Yeah. And sometimes it it has, it comes to a kind of embrace of mm. the unruliness of circulation. So think of when people assemble for a protest, a presumption that you might get recorded there um, and that you might appear in a photograph on a in a newspaper or on the internet or even just the fact like it doesn't need to be so highly politicized. It can be, oh, I'm at a Beyonce concert yeah. <laughs> and I know that there's going to be people taking cell phone footage and I might end up on a complete stranger's TikTok um, I think there are a lot of people who kind of operate under the assumption that they might be recorded, and that's something very different than mm-hmm. sort of imagining that there's a way to control it. These are sort of just dif- different. I mean, that's one of the things we're interested in exploring is sort of what what happens when these sort of sonic publics, right, or mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. pe- when people who are in in pu- shared public spaces start to assume that there's something interesting going on with recording. So facilitating things like moments of silence, because those are so unusual in public mm-hmm. spaces, especially at things like protests or concerts or things like that. So that's been a, a really powerful technique in a lot of the feminist movements in East Central Europe is to use silence and recusal to kind of make it eerie that there isn't this kind of saturation of noise and sound and music that you usually associate with a protest. Yeah, drawing that importance to that lack of sound. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, So as I mentioned, you received the Summer International Collaborative Research Grant. What were you able to do with your funding? We're only, we're less than a year out from when you first received this. You have um, about you know, four and some odd months left. Um, how did you spend this first summer? Yeah, so I had two main goals. One was to really take advantage of being in community in Berlin, where a lot of the artists I'm inspired by currently live and work, and also in community in um Kind of two groups of scholars, one at the University of Warsaw uh, and the other at the University of Wrocław, which is another m- important Polish university with a really strong cultural studies and musicology program and actually a, a 
a soundscapes lab. So a, oh, a wow. whole team of researchers who are kind of thinking about sound in public space. So I wanted to be in community there and just talk to as many people as I could, share with them some of these ideas, but also actually just learn from them. You know, some of the, some of my project is really about questions that I have. And one of the things I have been working on and that I could really take advantage of being, you know, sitting in seminars, going to dinner, um, chatting in larger groups, meeting PhD students, things like that, um, is also hearing what other people are working on maybe related to some of the same political questions because we live in this moment of just incredibly fast-paced political change, uh, both in the United States and in um, East Central Europe. Um, so I kind of was able to listen to like, oh, how, do, how does work with Ukrainian refugees in Poland inflect mm -hmm. what people are doing in terms of international collaboration for sure, but also just their own research questions. So talking with friends who are like, learning Ukrainian ever since um, March 2022. And so that was one part. And then the other is, um, this is, like I said, this is sort of uh, the, the incubator for a book project. So I was able to uh, go to archives that have been closed since 2020 for the first time. And so able to, first of all, connect with archivists there and talk through this project with them and talk to them about materials on location, which is just invaluable. Um, and at the same time, also just like do a deep dive, li like listen to a bunch of stuff, look at a bunch of materials and just kind of come away with um, a lot of new ideas. And so one of the things I've been doing since then is, of course, trying to um, organize that, distill some central questions. What are a lot of a lot of the scholars I talked to were thinking about decolonizing their both methodologies, but also what they work on. Um, so the topics that they work on. So thinking about race differently in East Central Europe than it has been. And that's in part because of uh, Russia's war on Ukraine, but also a renewed emphasis, like actually a large result of Black Lives Matter movement having global traction um, and calling in, um, calling out a lot of presumptions of a white Poland or a white Germany and which there have been people working on this for a long time and organizing around this but I, I found that this felt like a really urgent conversation for people there which I hadn't expected necessarily uh, well I didn't know because I, I hadn't hadn't been there in a while um, so those were kind of the first, the, the two main things. Um, also just tried to meet a lot of people and learn new projects. And so one of the things I've been doing since I got back is just trying to build those new relationships. Um, what we're hoping to do, and I'm sure this is a little bit where we're going with the next question, is to really create an online conversation at some point where we're all sitting with shared texts. Not that we've written, though maybe, you know, one or two pages sort of topic statements, but actually just shared texts that we feel are really inspiring and important for doing research in the 21st century. And they might be historical documents. They might be um, one of the things that I'm noticing is the pandemic created this disconnect between national cultures of scholarship mm -hmm. where we weren't able to come together at conferences. We weren't able to travel for research. And so we developed, people wrote <laughs> texts that shaped, you know, whole whole departments, whole disciplines um, in a national context that 
or it doesn't even need to be national, it can be regional, that we're still just reading for the first time. So just kind of cultivating and getting a sense of who's interested, what artists would be interested in being part of that conversation versus artists we might want to sort of just um, study or engage with um, for their practice. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, I guess you mentioned that you were meeting a lot of new people as well. So did you kind of know going in like some of um, your colleagues in those universities or um, were you also developing some other partnerships that you had established like years ago prior to going? Kind of both. Uh, So I knew some of the people, some of the people had actually been in some of my collaborators were in the triangle uh, in 2019, 2020 and Mm. abruptly had to leave during the pandemic. So it was literally kind of uh, an intellectual friendship that was broken Mm. or put on pause or whatever, or thrown into disarray, whatever, whatever kind of, (laughs) however you want to think about March 2020. And so it was a matter of just continuing those conversations and deepening those conversations. Some it was people I knew from years of shared investments, but hadn't been able to, yeah, just have a longer sustained conversation. I think that's what I would underline is that, you know, in the humanities, we often just say we need time. And this grant is really a good example of like, yeah, I got, I was able to spend four days with people rather than a 30 minute Zoom call or a harried, you know, email like tag team over the course of six months, which, you know, where we are now. Um, So yeah, some new, and then of course they have, once I'm sort of on location, you know, there's a pretty good train system in Poland, so I was really delighted that people I could travel around pretty easily, and people would kind of take the train in for an afternoon, you know, one or two hour train ride in and sit and talk through. I mean, we like honestly, it was a lot of informal, generative brainstorming, some enthusiasm, some kind of like whoa, like this is really we don't share a perspective, um, mm-hmm. but all I think these are all I think central to how academic work is done. So, yeah. Yeah. All valuable and yeah. it's different yeah. forms. And I was able to go in June, which was right before the end of like the the season for music performances and festival, like before summer festivals, but like there were still some exhibitions and stuff like that. So I could just go and see a lot of art, which was really important for me. Yeah. That's like perfect timing. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, so what's next for you in the research project? How do you plan to continue and expand um, these international collaborations and travels? Yeah, a couple of things. One is uh, we're going to have another meeting with some, but not all of the collaborators at the annual Slavic, Slavics conference, which is in Philadelphia, which is Slavic studies. So it's an interdisciplinary group, so not quite as many musicologists, though some will be there. Um, we'll just get together and kind of touch base, having sort of taken some time, maybe make a plan for um, this sort of online iteration of this, what would be doable, not burdensome in terms of adding it to our normal teaching schedules at, oh, we're all at public universities, so we've all, we've all got a lot of work to do. Um, so that's the kind of I don't know. That's the pragmatic answer to your question is we we just want to make sure that we have group meetings with whoever's available at a particular time. And, you know, that's where having these funds is really helpful because I can, you know, say, okay, we're going to go like I'm I'm here. I'm coming to the conference or I can make another trip back to Poland, um, even if it's not quite as extensive. 
So it's just a matter of like checking in every six months. And long term, we're looking for, yeah, a kind of dispersed, really inclusive online webinar kind of thing or, or seminar, I guess, where we, we've got pre-circulated texts. And ultimately, we want to bring, even if it's modest, kind of uh, three-part sort of art installation, both to UNC and to um, probably some some gallery in, in Warsaw. I will say this is um, even since... You know, I put together this grant, the like funding structures for um, all kinds of things have changed uh, just in terms of, you know, commissioning art and stuff like that um, in both Poland and the U.S. So um, I'm kind of excited to see like how agile we need to be and what we're going to be able to do. And maybe something online is going to be much easier than on location. But I think for me, it's maintaining that collaborative spirit that we're talking about it together. And that's something that we all both have access to on both sides of the ocean, I guess I mean by that. Yeah. So you kind of touched on this already in a few different ways, but how did what did this experience and, and receiving this grant mean for you and, and your research more broadly? I'm thinking um, in particular, you mentioned time and kind of how you, may have, you might have to be agile. And I guess is that a, a good thing in being able to respond? Yeah, I think the, the five-year window and that you don't, like I, of course, wrote a proposal, well, I tried to write a proposal that was very structured, right? Phase one was this summer, phase two is in the next two years, and phase three is pending some of the agility, you know, um, sort of in years four and five. Um, but I think what that does is allow stepwise motion through the project, and it allows certain parts to be maybe a little bit different than we imagine them to be based on also, like, other people's time. So a collaborative project needs to be sensitive to, I mean, most basic thing is people's like care responsibilities and teaching you know, and work responsibilities, but also things like, I mean, and this has been exemplified in my colleagues' work, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia just reoriented daily life um, in the region in terms of aid work, in terms of uh, universities being asked to do international hosting of refugee scholars. And of course, that extends far beyond Ukraine. But in the case of Poland, that was very acute because of the mm -hmm. shared border and shared history um, and cultural closeness. These kinds of things can be really hard to build into um, a short-term grant. And so the fact that it's a little bit longer, um, I think it indicates to me an investment on the part of the university in what I think is the strength of the of intellectual work in the arts and humanities, which is just not pushing projects to, through on a strict timeline, um, allowing space for ideas. Complicated ideas take time to develop. They take hard conversations. They take careful and fastidious work through materials, texts, and the writing process itself is slow, so that that for me is one of the great gifts of this is I can sort of take my time or rather know that for the next couple of summers I don't need to be scrambling for support um, to do the kind of work that I want to do. And of course, um, it's also a signal that collaboration is key um, instead of the sort of individualized um, uh, model of research, which the kind of tenure and promotion model, which is like, what are your publications? And, you know, did you get XYZ specific task done? Um, and this this provides a kind of different frame and a different 
world of accountability, um, being able to be in con- conversation with artists who don't care about tenure, don't often find books necessarily, like academic books, to resonate the ideas that are valuable to them about their artistic practice. This allows for us to kind of, again, like live with that difference and benefit from it rather than avoid it or kind of be in our own separate tracks. Yeah, absolutely. So as we began to wrap up, is there a book that has changed your life? Or, of course, uh, going by your work, if you want to think broadly, I'm also interested in hearing about any other written creative pieces, recordings that might have made an impact on you. I'll take the bait on not talking about a book. I appreciate the question. Lots of books have changed my life. But um, since I have the opportunity, I would mention a sound recording project by a composer who... Uh, really thrilled to say was able to bring to UNC. Her name is Anaya Lockwood. Um, she's active in New York right now. She made a three-hour um, installation piece that's a sound map of the Danube River. The reason this piece has changed my life um, is manifold. First, uh, she recorded it over a four-year period. So wow. um, every time she had a break, she would go and travel and sit day by day and just making different recordings, following her ears. Um, One of the things, she's a composer by training, but she's done a lot of work with sound recordings to interrogate her own listening and develop her own listening processes. She's interested in finding moments in daily life in the world around us that we don't pay attention to that have a lot of beauty, uh, a lot of rhythmicity, a lot of life in them. And the piece is, like I said, it's three hours. It's an installation probably for a room that's, I don't know, tw- the size of a double-wide double, double wide garage, something like that. <laughs> but it, um, it's from the source to the delta of this really important river, and it includes conversations with people. Mm. And one of the things that I like about it is at first you think it's this sort of like, maybe you think it's, um, I don't know, some kind of background soothing sort of plainly healing or uh, soundscape, um, you know, sort of like rainforest sounds Mm -hmm. or something like that in a, I don't know, in a massage parlor. But once you start listening to a little bit, you realize it's telling a story and it's telling her story, a very specific Mm -hmm. story of, well, first of all, what she was listening to. um, So everything from pebbles grinding along the Um, bottom of the river, which she recorded with a hydrophone, which is a microphone you can drop into the water um, and record underwater sounds, and to like frogs on the banks of the river, to fishermen, to kayakers, bicyclists. Um, And one of the things I think I just value about that is we're constantly being pushed to kind of be more in touch with nature. That's the kind of I don't know. That's one of this long environmentalist, um, uh, like Western um, philosophy, and what she models here is that being in touch or making, you know, paying attention, um, to use a more kind of listening-oriented term, is really about relationships and moving through relationships and caring for one's relationships. And because I was able to bring her here for the installation this wor- of this work. 
I've been able to learn a lot more about how she cultivated this sort of approach to recording as a practice. Um, also, how she doesn't include everything that she records or she purposefully doesn't record sometimes. So this connects with some of the questions mm -hmm. in this project. But at the same time, we just became, developed a kind of epistolary relationship. Um, I mean, we see each other when we can, but it's been really motivating to have a personal connection, of course, to this artist whose work inspires me so much. And then just like on a very fun, <laughs> uh, a very fun sort of final thought about its influence on me is also I was inspired generally, not by this work, to do a big bike ride along the Danube River. It's a very common thing. Um, tourist thing for people mm -hmm. to do, and I did it sort of at a at a seam in my my previous research projects while I was living in Berlin, and packed up my bike and went on it. And because of this piece, I would make these little recordings the whole time along the trip. And that that experience actually just kind of helps me understand just this piece better. But also, it it made me think about sort of travel and the relationships we form on travel in a really profound way. So, kind of important to me on that in that way too is that it it provides a sort of release from this sort of like oh i'm going to keep a journal at the end of the day but it actually shapes how you how you relate to the world sort of open and attentive rather than trying to capture things the whole day through um so it's it's been really important to me for that and makes me think about um sort of the complexity danube goes through Central Europe and then Southeastern Europe, and it makes me think about the complexity of those histories and how they sound. That's more to do with my own work, I'm not. But it's a it's a really interesting project, and her whole work is sort of generative and about human relationships, both with each other, but also with cats and uh, trees and wind and particular particular places as well. Or even the river itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. that is great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. That'll wrap up this episode. Um, thank you so much for um, joining the podcast, Andrea. Thank you so much, Kristen. This has been the Institute Podcast. Listen to other and upcoming episodes by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Visit our website, iah.unc.edu, to find past episodes and transcripts. You can also learn more about our upcoming events, programs, grants and leadership opportunities for UNC Chapel Hill faculty, and read stories that feature our Arts and Humanities Fellows. Thank you for joining us.